everybody. Hello. This is Crystal. This is just, oh, this is Kat. <laughs> welcome back to Alternative Interests. Yes, welcome. <laughs> um, you know, like I promised, this is part three of Darley Routier today. Routier? Routier, yeah. I have been reading this for six weeks, everybody, and... Yeah, you've been on I, this for a while. This is like a roller coaster. Like I feel oh like I feel like part one, I am like totally hanger. Like she's she did it. And part two, I'm like, uh, wait, hold on, maybe not. And the injustice of it all. So I can't wait. Oh, there's so much more today. <laughs> so I hope you're cozy. Because oh, I've got 24 pages of notes. Shut the front door. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. I told you, whether it takes 30 minutes or three hours, we are getting this done today because I can't do it anymore. Oh, my gosh. Well, maybe I'll keep my comments to a minimum this time. Just so you I can mean, holy. I, I mean, advanced apologies to you because I am going to be just powering through this. There's so much. Gosh. Okay. Well, I guess let's just get into it then. We'll see who uh, craps out first, me or your laptop battery. It'll probably be my laptop battery. Oh, man. And with that. Here we go. Um, you know, if you've made it this far, uh, you realize it's part three. And I'm tired. I'm so tired. Um, We're all tired. I'm not going to bother recapping the case. No, just because go listen to part one and two if you haven't. Part, yeah, listen to part one and two. And this uh, part three is going to be a continuation of uh, the avalanche of shit that I found. But you're going to hear, I mean, you can already hear it in my voice that I'm just, oh my God, there's so much. I can recap so it much. in like one second. Watch. A mom did something horrible or at least we thought she did but it turns out maybe she didn't and um, and now part State three texas what the fuck <laughs> seriously and those prosecutors oh the prosecutors oh man they oh man just i need to yeah maybe you should keep your comments to yeah a, see I mean, see i have already started i'm keeping them to a minimum oh lord cat is gonna we'll do be our quiet. best yes okay i'm sure people are getting happy. into it we'll see if we can just get it all <laughs> here out we of go me. go Okay, so in part three, I am really hoping that I can take some of this like disjointed information that I've given you so far and maybe tie it up all together, bring some of these weird loose ends together and maybe bring you to some kind of resolution. It's probably not going to be what we want, but at least we'll have a more complete picture of what's going on here. Sounds good. Um, so last week, I gave you a little bit of insight into the meetings that the prosecution had with their witnesses. Remember, um, they had uh, similar to a mock trial and uh, they performed this with the witnesses all in the room together. So they all got to hear each other. OK. And this is a problem. This is not supposed to happen. The witnesses are not supposed to hear each other's testimony. Oh. Because it influences the testimony. I wouldn't say that this is necessarily nefarious that like a witness is going to be listening to be like, oh, what do they say? I need to match them. It's more like your brain, the way our brains work is our brain likes it likes to know what's going on. It does not like ambiguity. It wants to know everything. And so your brain will fill in gaps for you. Uh huh. 
So say that you're up on the witness stand and you're giving your testimony and maybe there's a part of your testimony that in your personal situation, it's a little blurry. Maybe you don't know the whole facts. Maybe something about what you saw or what you heard was not quite clear. Yeah. You're in this mock testimony. You hear someone else's testimony. It fills in that gap in your brain. And now you inadvertently have confirmed in your own story that, oh, that must be what I heard. Totally. So this happens. And as a result, we get a lot of inconsistencies in the trial testimonies. Oh. And not just from like the crime scene itself, but testimonies from like pretrial hearings somehow changed like drastically by the time we got to the jury trial. So I'll kind of go into some of these inconsistencies. Officer Waddell. Remember, he was the first officer on scene. In Mm -hmm. part two, I briefly touched on some of this, but I'm going to mention it just one more time. Remember, I mentioned that he had not informed dispatch that he had responded to this call and he didn't tell them that he had gotten out of his car. Uh Uh-huh. If you listen to any scanner, any police scanner, there's a lot of chatter and a lot of timestamps being given. 12, 13, 2, 9, 4, and 3, 14 status. Wrong. 8, 9. 13 This is completely normal and it's normal for police to be constantly checking in and out with dispatch saying when they're getting out of their vehicle where they're going what they're doing if they're taking a break everything is documented because this is a safety concern you need to know where your officers are yeah Especially if they're getting out of their vehicle, it's important to know where they were because if all of a sudden they stop responding to their radio, you need to know exactly where they were. Yeah, and what's going on. Here's why I think he did not tell dispatch where he was and when he got out of his car. Okay. Officer Waddell testified that when he arrived at the crime scene, he encountered a man in the front yard with jeans and no shirt. He testified that he got out of his vehicle with his gun drawn pointed at this man because he's responding to a Mm -hmm. stabbing Mm -hmm. and he demands the man to identify himself. He loses sight contact of the man for a moment. He gets to the door and he enters the house and all he hears is screaming because he's got Darren working on his son and Darlie screaming her head off to dispatch. Well, yeah, I think in all the chaos of being confronted with a potential attacker and being walking into this crime scene, he just, it fell out of his head. Everything that he knew fell out of his head and he forgot to check in with dispatch. I believe it. Yeah. At trial, Officer Waddell testified that the man he saw in the front yard was Darren. Oh. There's a huge problem with this. Darley was on the phone with 911 when Officer Waddell arrived. You actually hear him in the background while she's on the phone. You also hear Darren in the background just before Officer Waddell is heard coming in. I'm going to play two. I'm not going to play the whole clip because it's chaotic, but I am going to play two clips from the 911 call right now. Okay. It's really one clip, but I'm going to split it Um so that I can give context for what's going on. Just keep in mind, this is actually one long clip that I'm cutting in half. Okay. So here is my first one. Oh my God! 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 Oh my
So what is going on here is you hear Darlie say, oh my God, are they dead? And then you hear the the 911 dispatcher say, calm down. And you hear Darlie say again, they're dead? Oh my God. So what's happening there is Darlie is asking her husband, are they dead? Uh. Her husband in the background responds, you can't really hear him. But that's when she freaks out. She's like, oh, they're dead. Oh, my God. And that's why she ramps it up that second time. Because she's reacting to something that was said. Okay. So now this next clip is immediately after this. Okay. Okay, it is really hard to hear uh-huh. because it's very quiet. But right after Darlie says they killed our babies, very quietly you hear someone say, lay down, just sit down. That's Officer Waddell. Oh. Now, these two clips, they're, they're one clip. I have to, I cannot stress that enough. How can you go from Darren telling her the kids are dead to Officer Waddell walking in literally 10 seconds later. Yeah. Darren could not have been in the front yard. Well, what if he followed him quickly, like when Officer Waddell came in? No. How? Why? Because Darren was performing CPR. Oh, that's right. He could not have gotten, in 10 seconds, he could not have gotten past Officer Waddell. And back in. There's Past no officer. way. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, okay, so then so who was this person that Waddell saw in the front yard? There's two theories here about Officer Waddell's story. Okay. Either one, Officer Waddell lied. He didn't see anyone outside. Mm-hmm. If if he lied, we don't really know the reason why he would have lied. Yeah. The second theory is that Waddell encountered the attacker. Remember, I said when he got out of his car with his gun drawn, he lost line of sight on this person. Yeah. Who's to say this wasn't the attacker and got away? True. So just kind of stick a pin in that. Okay. And we'll come back to it later. I already mentioned, like I said, that your brain likes to fill in blanks. So um, the other thing that these two clips kind of do is that they help establish that Officer Waddell told her to sit. You can hear it. It's in the transcript. You can hear it. It's faint, but you can hear it. He says, just sit down. Okay. In his testimony during the jury trial, he claims that he told Darlie to administer aid to her boys and she refused and she sat down. Oh. Nowhere do you hear him say to take care of the kids. I know I only played the short clip, but if you yeah. listen to the full 911 call, you never hear him say anything hmm. about taking care of them. Officer Waddell testified that Darley told him that she had been fighting her attacker at the kitchen island. Um, this was a huge point of contention because, remember, Darley is consistently saying that she does not remember the attack. She remembers waking up and everything afterwards. She does not remember the actual attack. She had these massive bruises on her arms. 
Uh-huh. She doesn't actually remember how she got them. They think these are self-inflicted. There's no way those could be. I mean, I would love, if they were, I would love to know how she did that. Uh-huh. Okay. So um, during Darley's testimony at the trial, they established that anything that she said to Waddell would have occurred during the 911 call. Because at the end of that 911 call, she went to the door to talk to the other officer. Uh-huh. No one disputes this. Everything that she would have said to Officer Waddell is on that 911 call. The prosecutor asked her if she told Waddell she had bought someone off. Darley says no, because if I said that, it would have been on the 911 tape and it's not there. And then the prosecutor just moved on. He was not. I don't think he was expecting Darley to say that. I think she was. He was expecting her to say no. Yeah. He wasn't expecting her to bring up the 911 tape and she did. And so the prosecutor moved on because you don't want to dwell on this too long. You don't want to dwell on the fact that there's no evidence to show that she actually told him this. Yeah. Now, there's also a lot of argument uh, during her testimony about the 911 call. They claim that in the 911 call, she said she was fighting someone. That she said that? That she was fighting someone in the 911 call? Yes. So listen to this. And I'll play it one more time. It's right at the end. That is where they say she says, I was fighting. Darley says she said, I was frightened. Oh, that makes sense. They go back and forth about this. <laughs> In the trial? testimony? <laughs> yes, extensively. Do they even bring in like a voice, uh, a voice specialist or a <sighs> linguistic? Later. Oh, okay. Later for something else. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll actually bring it up later. All right. But the prosecutor asked her six times. I counted. I got to six and I was like, I'm done counting. So he asked her, he said, quote, if it did say fighting, does that indicate you remembered the attack? Every time he asked this, Darley would say, I don't think it says fighting. He asked this several times because he was trying to make the point that if someone had said that during a 911 call, it meant that at the time they knew what was going on. He wanted her to admit that there's a connection there. Oh, he wanted to catch her. Yes. Okay. And her answer every time what? is, I didn't say fighting. I said frightened. He was, he was trying to break her. He was. Yeah. Isn't that what cops are supposed to do? Not what, well, I guess, yeah. If you're a lawyer, they, you can I mean, do that too. I mean, she's a... She's a defendant yeah, on, the stand. on the stand. Yeah, prosecutor wants to trip her That's up. That's true. There are some major differences in police testimony. Like I said, so I'm going to go into more of those details. Okay. Not really in any particular order because, again, um, I cannot. I, I'm not even kidding. I've probably read about a thousand pages. <laughs> um, so, pardon the hell out of me if this is disorganized. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll try to forgive you. Yes. Okay. So in a pretrial hearing, I believe this was the bond hearing, Officer Waddell claimed that you, the utility room door was open. Now, remember, this is where Darley was saying that he went that way towards the garage. 
Waddell says that when he went to go, remember, he runs in because he's expecting there to be an attacker there. Yeah. He says that door was open. Okay. When we get to the jury trial, he says, I'm pretty sure the door was shut. Okay. That's kind of a major difference. That's a huge difference. Yeah. Um, he also, so the defense, I think, kind of caught on to this and asked him, uh, was the door locked or unlocked? And Waddell says, uh, I didn't check. <laughs> you didn't check? How was that not yeah. your first? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go into the hospital staff and uh, they're changing stories because they change a lot. Um, so this photo I am sharing with you right now. Um, you can see that it very clearly says right here, platysmal penetration with active bleeding. Remember, that's that sheath of muscle on your neck. Yeah. And that's how they determine if it's a deep or superficial cut. Yeah. This very clearly says it was penetrated. That's a deep cut. Yeah. With so active, point that active bleeding. Yep. Yep. I'm just pointing that out. Because someone tried to say it was a superficial cut. Oh, God. Now, um, several nurses testified. And I'll go through a couple of their testimonies. Just like the big specific things right now. Okay. Uh, so, nurse Christopher Wheelgotts testified in trial that she had tearful eyes, but like a flat affect. So, he was like, she was misty eyed, but like... Not very emotional. When we look at the handwritten notes documenting her care, he notes that she is, quote, crying, visibly upset, upset yeah. weeping, very emotional, uh-huh. periods of angry sobbing, continues to weep. Very tearful. Nowhere does he say that there is a flat affect. Yeah, that's the, all of that is the opposite, obviously, of flat affect. Yep. Um, Jody Kotner was a trauma coordinator. Okay. And I think her testimony actually explains what this is better than I could. So I'm just going to read what she said. Okay. Uh, this is from her testimony. It says, quote, as a trauma coordinator, I have a lot of different duties or jobs. I am a registered nurse and I do hold a Texas license. I am a part of what is called a trauma team, which is a team of physicians, nurses, and, and ancillary personnel that are activated any time a major trauma comes into the emergency department. That's part of what I do. I don't actually work in the emergency department. I'm just part of this team, unquote. So that kind of tells you what she does. Yeah. Jody saw Darley during the day throughout her rounds. Um, I think Jody ended up changing one of her bandages at one point, but really she was just kind of checking in on her. Okay. Jody testified that she believed that Darlie was not grieving as a mother normally would in this situation. She said that her emotional state was withdrawn and detached and she did not cry. <laughs> Jody also said conversely that her family that visited was absolutely hysterical. So there's Darlie sitting there just kind of like emotionless. Existing. Yeah. And her family's in there like losing their damn minds. On cross-examination, some of this was clarified if you paid attention. And it's another, there are so many of these like blink and you'll miss it things. There are no notes in the patient care records from Jody. 
Oh. Because Jody does not provide direct patient care. And as such, she does not provide notes on patient care. This means there is zero documentation of Jody's testimony. Okay. There's no supporting evidence where Jody noted lack of emotion, flat affect, none of that. So are they just going on what she's saying in court now without any evidence of that? Yes. Even though there's clear evidence right here on the report of people saying very tearful, mm-hmm. needing emotional support. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually about to get into that right now. Okay. So Paige Campbell was another nurse. She testified that Darlie was not emotional. She might have been misty-eyed, but she never saw a tear run down her face. In essence, she was saying, without saying it, she was basically saying, I think she was faking it. <laughs> Paige's notes in the patient care records say very tearful. Yeah. And there's a note here that says, quote, patient requests that one family member in the room at all times. Yeah. Because her family was providing emotional support support, and she needed someone there every second. Yeah, I would too. So are you kind of seeing a theme here I am. with the testimonies yeah. versus the documentation? So are the, are people getting to these people beforehand? Are they trying to convince them of something beforehand? Or do you think this was that these people who, who were there and saw her then wanted to change their mind to fit the narrative of what that video clip of her at the... Do you know what I'm saying? Um... Give me a couple minutes. Okay. There's another nurse named Denise Falk who also testified to all the same stuff. She was unemotional, wasn't acting like a grieving mother, da-da-da-da-da. She also called Darlie whiny. She said that Darlie was whining, which to me, that sounds extremely antagonistic towards Darlie. Yeah. Note, the notes never call her whiny. This is Denise's opinion. Okay. And that's allowed in court? In court, yeah. They're asking for her testimony about what she witnessed. Okay. And the difference here is that patient notes are supposed to only provide the clear-cut facts. They're not supposed to provide the nurse's commentary. So everything you see on a patient care notes is facts. If they wrote that she was weeping, she was weeping. Yeah. Denise said that she was so troubled by Darlie's behavior that she went home and she wrote her own personal notes at home. Oh. With no one asking her to. Did she now? (laughs) I have not seen copies of these notes anywhere, so I'm not sure if they've been released. But they were a pretty big deal at trial. Apparently, she wrote pages and pages of notes about Darlie lying and things Darlie was saying and how strange it was. To me, this seems weird to like go home and deliberately write down information that's not the same as what you wrote in patient care notes. Uh This is weird. Yeah. Some of her notes said that um, Darlie talked about remembering fighting someone off and remembering them standing over her and pressure on her. And I, I just don't even know. Yeah. Um, I do want to say that Darlie was on several medications. I mentioned this in part one. 
that she was on several medications that the hospital staff gave her, but she was also on other things that people were just slipping her because she was so upset and hysterical. They were just giving her pills to calm her down. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they had to sedate her. Who knows what weird drug-addled ramblings she was having. Yeah. And also, remember, her family is all in there with her. They're trying to get her to remember. They're all speculating. Who's to say that they didn't go, well, well, do you, do you remember him standing over you? Or do you remember any of this? And it seeps into your subconscious. Your brain starts filling in blanks. And while she's drugged up and laying there, she just starts talking about, yeah, and he, he was standing over me. And, and then this, this woman goes home and writes it all down. Which is fucking weird. Yeah, so weird. So there were some nurses that were not called to testify. It's hard to say who they were because some of these notes aren't... The people were never identified who made some of the other notes on these pages. One specific name that I do know that did not testify is a woman named Teresa Powers. Okay. Teresa provided a sworn affidavit to Jimmy Patterson, who was one of the detectives. The defense mentioned this affidavit in a pretrial hearing... The prosecution immediately objected, saying that it was hearsay. Teresa has never come forward. Teresa was not provided as a witness. And that affidavit has never seen the light of day. Oh. So what does it say that the prosecution does not want people knowing? I have no idea. Are you going to tell me? I'm willing to bet it goes against every single other nurse's testimony. Oh, that's right. It's a sworn affidavit. That almost means more than testimony. How many other nurses went home that night and took notes about the patients or the people they saw that day? Just Denise. Oh, weird. Yeah. So, um, I already mentioned that the nurses all heard each other's testimonies during this mock trial. Uh Uh-huh. What I didn't mention is that the prosecutors passed around photos to the nurses. So this is common. You pass around photos to like jog their memories, remind them what was going on. This is normal. So they passed around some photos of Darley's injuries. Okay. Mixed in those photos were autopsy photos of Devin and Damon. I'll let you draw your own conclusion here. Okay. But think about how those boys were attacked. Yeah. And how young they were. Uh huh. I think I know why the nurses were antagonistic towards Darley. Because the prosecution is strongly telling them that this woman killed her own children. Look what she did to her children. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I was trying to say in the beginning. They're being yeah. swayed by what everyone is now saying about her, especially after seeing that video of her. That Not the video. It was the autopsy photos. Because what's the video going to do for a nurse? Like, what does that have anything to do with their testimony? Yeah, it has nothing to do with their testimony. I'm just saying, like, them them seeing it or hearing about it on the news and hearing what other people have to say, especially the prosecutors probably telling them that, too. It Yeah, it wasn't the video. Okay. It was the autopsy photos. Because remember, these are nurses. Yeah. Um, it is in their nature to care for others. Yeah. So you show them photos of what this evil woman did to her own children. Yeah. You're probably going to get them to flip pretty quick. True. And say whatever they need to say to put this monster away. True. 
So let's talk about the blood spatter analyst for the prosecution. Oh, God, don't tell me that this guy is with the prosecution, too. Uh, let's just assume that everyone has been Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, so his name was Tom Bevel. And Tom Bevel, uh, remember, this is the man who originally uh, he was he met with the defense and the defense's investigator mm-hmm. to say that the blood spatter on Darley's shirt had to come at one point because they wouldn't land in exactly that position twice. Okay. And then during the trial, he said, no, it was two separate times, completely going against what he had said before. This man um, has been linked to many trials over the years in which his testimony was vital for the conviction. So he has testified many times as a prosecution witness. Okay. Tom's testimony has been linked directly to several people who have been either exonerated or found wrongfully convicted because of blood evidence that Tom Bevel provided. Mm. Uh, These are... Timothy Masters, Mm -hmm. Jason Payne, Warren Hornick, David Cam, John Baxter Hamilton, and Kenneth Trentadue. All of these men were either exonerated or found wrongfully convicted and are awaiting a new trial. Hmm. In addition to those cases, there's two more. Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were exonerated by the Innocence Project. And Tom Bevel testified for the prosecution in both of their cases. This is interesting because as of April 2021, the Innocence Project is helping Darley. Oh. I didn't I don't know a whole lot about the Innocence Project, but I guess two really important things to know about them is that they don't typically accept cases where the defendant already has legal counsel. Usually they help people who don't have legal counsel. Yeah. Darley has a legal team. So the fact the Innocence Project is helping her regardless says a lot. Yeah. And number two, they do not accept cases when there is no exculpatory evidence. Oh, really? So that means that there's exculpatory evidence in Darley's case. We may not know exactly what, what it that is. is. We yeah. can speculate. Yeah. But the fact they're taking it on means that it that and that and that she has a chance. Or they think she has a chance. Yes. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that very quickly. Okay. Um, let's talk about what I am going to call the magical moving crime scene. Okay. So we're going to start with the kitchen. So uh, I am showing you a photo right now of the kitchen and there's a big arrow pointing to the broken wine glass. It's kind of hard to see. You can see the stem of the glass. Yeah. Remember, there's that broken wine glass that had the glass was on top of blood on the floor. And there was a a vacuum that had blood underneath it. These were really big to the prosecution because how does blood get underneath these things? So you have this first photo that just it's showing one angle of where the wine glass is. This next photo shows another angle of where the wine glass was, except that it's gone. There's no wine glass. And the photo just below it, the wine glass has moved and it is now sitting next to the dog food. Now, I just want to show you really quick. Here's just another, um, oh, another a different color. Yeah. This is where it was. 
and the dog food bowls way over there. Oh, so I thought all of that was like marble floor, but it's blood splatter. Yes, that's it's blood a splatter. lot of blood. Darley was bleeding from a neck wound and she was running back and forth getting wet towels, remember? Yeah, that's a lot of blood. Yeah. So the glass somehow went from right here next to the um, stand uh-huh. to all the way over here by the dog food. Oh, maybe it just walked over there. These are both police crime scene photos, by the way. Now, um, I'm going to show you another photo really quick. And I just want you to notice the difference here. That somehow the dog food bowl has rotated. And the vacuum is nowhere near where it was before. And the cord is pointed in a completely different direction. And does it look... Is that just me or does it, the floor look cleaner? Or am I not seeing the blood? I think it's the color of the photo. Okay. Remember, this is 1996. We don't have oh, to bust okay. cameras. Okay. But that's a whole lot of changes. That is a lot. Um... Also important to note is that this giant green blanket is no longer there. Oh. Yeah, there's a green blanket that's next to one of the kitchen counters, and it's not there anymore. That's weird. Yep. So, um, so you see where the vacuum is. Uh-huh. It's very clearly in a place where you can see it real well. Multiple police officers and paramedics testified during the trial that they did not see a vacuum there. Okay. But somehow it's in the crime scene photos. So weird. Yeah. So we're going to move on to the living room. So um, this photo is a screenshot. The police initially did a video camera walkthrough. Uh This is a screenshot from that walkthrough. You see the... Um, the table in the center there is a little off center. It looks like someone maybe bumped it. Um, you can see blankets on the floor, pillows. Now we're going to look at the next couple of photos. Okay. Now in this photo, this is uh, another screenshot from that video. This is just to the left of the photo we were looking at. So it's a view of the part of the couch that we couldn't see before. Uh-huh. Um, blanket on the floor, paperwork next to the couch. Pretty normal. Yeah. Now, somehow in this police video, in it's this police moved. photo, yeah. the pillows moved and there's paperwork the on the couch. Yeah. You want to know what that paperwork is? What? It's insurance papers that <sighs> somebody put there after the crime scene was shut down. Like, what? Did someone have something against this woman beforehand? I, I'm not understanding. Yeah, I have no idea. Now, notice... Directly below where the paperwork is on the floor in front of the couch, there's nothing you can see there, right? Uh-huh. What is that purple thing that's magically there now? It wasn't there in the last photo. So is anybody else noticing this? Like while it's happening or while these pictures are being shown? This is making me I mad. have a couple more I want you to look at, and then Ugh. I'll, I'll kind of talk about it. Okay. So now... You see this photo. This is a a different angle on the living room. Same couch, though. But do you notice that pillow is very bloody? Oh, yeah. Now let's go back. None of these pillows are bloody. Oh, not even that one. I'm wondering, and, is it turned over? Did someone... But why would they photograph it after moving it? 
Because they're idiots, clearly. I don't want to say this definitively. Yeah. But it is a theory that they manipulated the hell out of this crime scene. 100%. And these photos really prove it. Yeah. I don't know how much was changed. No one really knows how much it was changed. So was the crime scene ever documented truly in its original state? And we will never know. We'll never know. Yeah. I also saw in one uh, source that one of the first responders used a bathroom in the house Mm -hmm. and no one noticed. (laughs) How did a first responder have time to use the bathroom when there's all this shit going on? I have no idea. That's crazy. And then so here's a piece of information that caught my attention from one of the hearings conducted outside of the jury. So like this is during the trial, but the jury did not get to hear this. The defense asked repeatedly for a log for the photos. Okay. They wanted something that listed the photos in numerical order, saying what order they were taken in, what time and date they were taken. Mm -hmm. The prosecutors tried to be like, oh, well, we contacted you weeks ago saying that it was ready and you could come get it. And you decided not to. And uh, they were being like very like (laughs) babies about it. So the defense says, um, you never told us that. And the prosecutors were like, oh, we told you the sheriff's department had it. So the defense is like, well, I would really like to see it. Yeah. So they go to the sheriff's department during a break. And the sheriff's department says, yeah, we don't have that. And we've never had that. So then they go back to the prosecutor and they're like, yeah. So they said they didn't have it. And the prosecution's like, well, there's timestamps on the photos. Why can't you just use those? Yeah. And the defense is like, I will gladly use those if you could provide me a log with like who took them, the like standard stuff. Yeah. And the prosecutor was like, oh, I, I don't think that exists. It was determined that no log had ever been created to show the photos when they were taken, who had taken them, what order they were taken in, nothing. Wow. That seems like a huge problem to me. Yeah. A huge problem for them, too, because they've got this magical shifting crime scene that they can't talk about now. Since we're on the subject of photos... Uh, I wanted to share a photo with you of remember the prosecutors made a big deal about how the mulch outside the garage was not disturbed. It was outside the window. It was not disturbed. And that meant no one had gone out this window. Yeah, I remember that. I want to show you the window with the mulch. Notice the open window Uh and notice the mulch is a good two or three feet to the left of it. Yeah. Like a clear pathway. Yeah. No wonder the mulch didn't get disturbed. Exactly. You don't need to go through the mulch to get through the window. Yeah. Oh, man. While we're looking here at this window, the prosecution, especially James Cron, made a big fucking deal about how burglars don't cut screens. They just take them off. No, Mm -hmm. no burglar cut screens. That's just a movie thing. And that they said Darley did this to stage the crime scene because she doesn't know what a real burglar does. Yeah. So she didn't know that a screen could just be pulled off. Yeah. Except that, like, a burglar isn't just going to fucking sit there and be like, huh, can I can I pull this off? Because 
not all screens can just be pulled off. Some of them are built into the window. Some uh-huh. of them are screwed in. I'm not if I'm breaking into a house um, and I'm just kind of giving this away. I'm not going to sit there and like inspect the window. I'm just going to fucking slash the screen. It's easier and it's faster. Yeah. They also talked about remember there was the dust on the windowsill that wasn't disturbed. Uh huh. They made a mock up of this window and they brought it into the courtroom. They put dust on it and everything. Oh, wow. They had Detective Frosch, 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 whatever. He climbed through the window because when Darley described the attacker, he was, they figured like this detective was roughly the height and size that she was describing. So they were like, hey, come here and climb through this window. He climbed through it multiple times and the dust was never disturbed. That's interesting. These are like children's arguments. I just don't even understand. I know. It's, and you know what? It's getting so like, really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I mean, if I was her going through that trial, knowing that the rest of my life was on the line for something that I possibly did not commit or mm-hmm. that I didn't commit and all of this stuff, I had to sit there and listen I'd be beside myself, like totally understanding why she wanted to take the stand. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. I would want to defend myself, too. Completely. So I have alluded to this several times, but now let's talk about it outright that uh, there is a suspicious lack of note taking by the investigation team. Of course there is. Um, I need to correct my information from last part. It was not James Cron who uh, interviewed Darley and asked her the, um, did you kill your kids? This was actually a different private investigator. His name was Bill Parker. Okay. He testified that he asked her somewhere in the ballpark of 10 to 12 times, did you kill your kids? And remember her response every time was, if I did, I don't remember it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Is coming back. Here it is. So while Bill Parker was on the stand, he they asked him, hey, do you have any notes available to reference while you're up there testifying? And he said no. And they're like, oh, well, you did take notes during the interview, right? He said no. They're like, oh, okay. It was videotaped. Recorded, yeah. No. Oh. Oh, maybe not videotaped, but like you audio recorded it, right? No. So they like, they're like, okay, you went to the police station to do this interview, correct? And he's like, yeah. So they're like, um, you know that they have recording equipment. And Bill said that, oh, you know, I asked if they had a room available that was equipped for recording and they said they didn't have any. So I just, I did it in a different room. Oh. So they were like, you're a private investigator you have your own recording equipment, right? And he said, um, well, yeah, I do, but I didn't use it. And they're like, well, why Why didn't you use it? Like, you have this at your disposal. Why yeah. didn't you use it? He said he would have had to set it up on, like, a big tripod, like, or in the middle of the table. And he said, quote, unquote, I don't prefer that. That's very distracting. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So Bill Parker 
has zero documentation of this interview. This is all going off his memory. Oh my gosh. So we're just supposed to take him at his word. Oh, because he's at what so Darley's trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. This is craziness. Oh, there's so much more craziness. No, please make it stop. I just want it to stop. So the police officers were asked if they had taken notes of the crime scene. This is standard stuff. Yeah. Officer Waddell says that he made some notes in his whip out book, which is his that little spiral yeah. notebook. That's what it's called. It's, they call it their whip out book. I know. They need a different name. I like that name. Whip out whip book? Out. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> um, so he says that at some point he had made a couple of notes in this book, but oops, I don't know where they are. Of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. This is really pissing me off. Oh, yeah. So um, he admits on the stand that everything from that night is coming from memory because he did not make notes. Okay. So I, I want to read this little excerpt from, the, um, from his testimony. It is the defense attorney examining Officer Waddell. So he says, did you make those notes in one of those whip out books? Yes. But not that one. Not this one. So you've lost the notes. No, I just don't know where they are. I don't have them with me. I believe a copy was given to Sergeant Walling. Okay, so what we're relying on now is what you can retrieve from the halls of your memory. Yes. I'm going to go now. (laughs) I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Do you see why I, I, yeah. I got to get it all out? I got to be I know, done. I know. But holy cow. I mentioned Sergeant Walling in uh-huh. that court transcript. Um, Walling was asked, like, did you take any notes that night? Because he was he was the second responder on scene. He said the only notes he took was Darley's description of the attacker. Just the. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, okay, I, I'm serious. I'm done. So a few days after the attack, the police are still processing the crime scene. And they determined that, you know, there are motion sensor lights in the routier's backyard. So how did the attacker get away without setting off those motion lights? So they actually did a walkthrough of the crime scene to try and track down the path he took. Uh-huh. Sergeant Walling was there for this. He was conducting the walkthrough. Sergeant Walling did not take any notes during the walkthrough. He verbalized his information to someone else who was supposed to be taking notes. Sergeant Thomas Dean Ward, who I have not mentioned before, um, but he was also involved in the investigation. During his testimony, it came out that there was a copy of some like rough notes that he took about the incident, like shorthand, super quick notes, like field notes. Yeah. These notes would have been used to be turned into a formal report later on. That's standard. That's normal. That report could not be found. The lead detective couldn't find it. A secretary in the office couldn't find it. The sergeant couldn't find it. Okay. That report is missing. 
he was also very confusing about his notes. This part is weird to me. And I feel like he did himself no favors in admitting this. So he said that he has these handwritten field notes. He takes them home and he types them into his computer. He then takes the computerized version of his notes and uses those to make the report, the missing report. The thing is, the computerized copy of his notes had mistakes. Things like the officer that found the bloody sock, he named the wrong officer in his computerized reports. It did not match his handwritten ones. He didn't have a date on his notes. He claimed it had been a long night and he was tired. I have stopped talking because now I'm just in the sighing phase of this. I know. And soon I'll reach the eye roll phase. <laughs> and then the... And then maybe you'll be where I am. Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe. James Cron. Remember, he was that uh, consultant that they brought in. He did that initial walkthrough of the crime scene. He made zero notes during his walkthrough of the crime scene at 6 a.m. on June 6th. None. I feel like all these cops forgot to be how to be cops the day this happened, which is really fucking coincidental. James Cron didn't write down a single thing. Of course. Until he made his official report on June 16th. So 10 days is, after the attack is how the first is that time. even deemed a credible report then? Okay. So finally, um, I'm going to move away from the police, but still notes. Fucking um, You asked about an audio technician for the 911 yeah. tape. We're going to talk about him. His name is Barry Dickey. And <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> it's fun to say. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, he was brought in because he is the one who transcribed the 911 tape. The transcript you find online was made by Barry Dickey. Okay. He was brought in because he was uh, supposed to do analysis on the sound of the tape to hear what we call ambiance. He was supposed to note the difference in background noise and... All the listeners are going to know exactly what I'm talking about here. So you can hear when someone is talking in a room that's well padded with um, a lot of carpet, a lot of cloth, a lot of soft surfaces, as opposed to talking somewhere like a bathroom or a kitchen. There's a very different sound and they call it ambiance. It's actually why a lot of podcasters record in their closets, including you. Yeah, that's where I am right now. (laughs) Yep. It's because the sound is better than in your office where you have no soft surfaces. Exactly. And this is covered in clothes, so. It dampens the sound. It makes it less echoey. Yeah. Anyway, Barry Dickey was asked to clean up the audio and analyze some portions because they wanted to know. Darley is saying that while she's on the phone with 911, she's walking to the kitchen and back to the living room and back and forth. And they wanted Barry Dickey to tell them, is this true? Can you hear this? Barry Dickey was able to identify portions that matched that showed her walking based on his analysis from a sound dampened room 
such as a living room, to a more echoey room, such as a kitchen. Yeah. The 911 transcript includes all of Barry Dickey's notes for who is talking, what's being said, and background noises. Okay. Barry Dickey is very deliberate in saying that if he heard it on the tape, he put it in the notes. Except that the ambiance notes are not on the transcript. Why? Barry didn't write any notes about the ambiance. So again, he's going based off memory during his testimony. Oh my God. Because one of the points he made was that you could hear Darley walk from the living room to the kitchen, but not back. He was claiming she walked to the kitchen and just stayed there. Ugh. I would also like to note, I said that there were some notes on the background noises and Barry was very specific that he said, quote, if I heard it, I would have noted it. In that entire five minute transcript, there are five notes for background sounds. Two of them are for typing. Two of them are marked as unintelligible and one is marked as dog barking. I'll tell you right now. He did not know when you hear the door opening because you can hear that door opening when Officer Walling comes in. Yeah. He does not note the scuffling sounds be- when the phone is held at Darley's ear. Ugh. What other sounds did he leave out? Yeah. Now, remember Lloyd Harrell. This was the man who was the private investigator for the defense. Remember, he was the one who was like, um, excuse me, that blood expert just lied to you. And the yeah. judge was like, oh, but you've been in the court the whole time, so you can't testify. Oh, my gosh. You can read his testimony because the judge al- did hold a very short examination, cross-examination outside of the jury because he wanted to hear what Lloyd had to say because you have to. You have to hear what he has to say exactly. to decide if it's important enough. Yeah. So you get to see everything he said. Lloyd Harrell was planning on bringing a transcript of the 911 tape that his team had created. Okay. There are differences in what he hears versus what Barry Dickey put in the transcript. All right. Because Lloyd Harrell was not allowed to testify, this version of the transcript didn't make it to the jury. Oh. They tried to get it in. I think they got it in way later on. Yeah. With a couple of notes listed that, for instance, Barry Dickey wrote um, indecipherable for some of the dialogue. And you can clearly hear what Darley's saying. Like, Darley says, who could do this? And Barry Dickey wrote, who was sleeping? And you can hear it says, who would do this? Oh. Barry Dickey's transcript has so many errors. Yeah. Remember, Lloyd Harrell didn't get to testify. And in the realm of other witnesses that didn't get to testify, I want to talk about one particular witness the prosecution never called. Oh, gosh. They hired a forensic psychiatrist to do an evaluation of Darley. This doctor's name was Dr. Kenneth Declava, I believe. That's how you say it. Okay. Dr. DeClava determined that in his expert opinion, Darley was not a sociopath and she did not pose a present or future risk to society. This is very important 
because when the jury was tasked with her sentencing, they had to answer. The first question they had to answer was yes or no. Is Darlie a present or future risk to society? And that's to determine the death penalty. Okay. This doctor said that he he determined that she was not a danger. The prosecution said, okay, we're not going to use you as a witness. Don't bother writing a report. Oh. This evidence is considered exculpatory evidence. Really? Because it helps the defense. Oh, yeah. The prosecution never gave it to the defense. How How is the prosecution getting away with all this? I know I keep saying this, but at this point, it is blatant and kind of unbelievable at this point. There's a very specific reason, and I'll tell you it later. Oh, my God. Just tell me now. I want this to be over. Do you want to know now? No, don't tell me now. Just let's okay. just go. Okay. Um, obviously, the prosecution tried to hide Dr. DeClava's existence, and they did a damn good job of it. Because it, it wasn't until after the trial, during one of the appeals, that they found this. The appellate lawyer did an open records request. And while they were looking through financial statements, they found payments to Dr. DeCliva. What? That's how they found this guy. Oh, wow. If they had not done this and they had not been looking so closely, they never would have found this. No. Because remember, they told him not to write a report. That's nuts. Yeah. I know I've gone over and over and over all the evidence, the lack of evidence. Yep. Um, now, I'm going to tell you about a theory that I found about what happened. What really happened. That night? Yes. Okay. And if this story is true, then holy shit. Okay. In 1998, this is two years after the incident, about a year after Darley was sentenced. Darley received a letter from another inmate at another prison. This inmate is only known as Carl. Carl told her that in late fall 1996, he was serving time in prison and he had heard a fight between two inmates in the yard. These two inmates were arguing about a crime they had committed together where children had been stabbed and one of the inmates mentioned a woman named Darla. Carl had not heard about the Routier murders because he had been serving time. The thing is, he didn't like hearing these guys talking about hurting kids. So he got in the middle of it and he confronted one of the men about like, hey, the fuck do you do just say about hurting children? Yeah. Because that's one of the things that you do not admit to. Yeah. in in, In prison. Yeah. The man he confronted, he only knew him as Arkansas. That was his name in the prison. That's all he knew him as. Okay. Arkansas admitted to killing the kid because the kid had seen his face. So he had to kill the witness. Oh, wow. So Arkansas was receiving psychiatric care while he was in prison because he was suffering from nightmares and flashbacks, presumably from this attack. Okay. He attempted suicide, but he was unsuccessful. So he was getting care. They evaluated him. They said that he, they released him because they're like, you're not a danger to yourself. We don't think you're going to hurt yourself again. So on December 28th, 1996, 
he was sent back to his regular cell. Okay. He completed suicide by hanging himself. Oh, wow. What's weird is that he was found with his hands tied in front of him with a bed sheet. Tied in front of him? His hands were tied in front of him and he was hanging. So how did he complete suicide? The death is officially a suicide. But it wasn't a suicide. Maybe. So this brings us to 1998. Carl was reading The New Yorker and he saw an article that mentioned the Routier case. And it talked about Darlie and her conviction. And it just clicked that he was like, oh, her children were stabbed and Arkansas told a story about being in that area and hurting a couple of kids. Yeah. So he writes this letter to Darlie and he writes a copy of it to an investigative reporter in Houston. Um, It was someone who was mentioned in the New Yorker article. The reporter did some digging and with Carl's help, they were able to identify Arkansas. I know Arkansas's name. You're just not going to say it. I am not going to say it because the source that I found the story in initially didn't say his name. The reporter tracked down a couple of Arkansas's associates. One of them was a woman named Karen and her boyfriend. And I don't know his name. But anyway, Arkansas and the boyfriend and another man were all kind of driving around in June 1996. And they were arguing about drugs. Something about drugs. Karen wasn't very clear about it. They were driving around the Dallas area and they ended up coming home real early in the morning and they said they broke into a house. It all went bad. There were young children in the room and a fight broke out. The kids woke up and all hell broke loose. Oh. So there's some evidence to back up that this might be related because there is a theory that there were multiple knives involved. Because some experts have testified and signed affidavits in the appeals process that they say they don't think that the same knife was used on Darlie and Devin and Damon. Oh. There were multiple knives. There's evidence to back this up. Okay. While testifying, Sergeant Ward testified that they were, I mean, they were searching this alley behind the house because that's how... Like, that's how Darlie said this person got out of her house. They looked in every trash can in that alley. They searched neighbors' boats. They were searching everything. Detective Patterson found knives in someone's yard. No one took the knives as evidence. No one photographed the knives. Nothing was done with the knives. At all? Nope. They didn't bag them and take them to an evidence locker? Nope. Sergeant Ward said, this is a quote from his testimony. There was no question in my mind those knives were not associated with this crime. Oh, my God. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Excuse me? Why doesn't anything surprise me anymore about this case and things like that? I'm just A family was just literally stabbed. Yeah. You find a knife. But it has nothing to do with your case. Yeah. Really. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. 
Remember I was describing the family dynamic. They sounded like the cutest family. Yeah. Darren kind of dropped everything to come see Darley. Darren and Darley were the cutest family, right? Yeah. That may not have been completely true. Well, of course, not everything is as it seems. I know. And not, I mean, you can paint something as rosy as you want it. There's always going to be the bad times. Yeah, look at Instagram. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I mentioned that he had the insurance scheme that he had mentioned, like, maybe we should have someone steal our stuff. Yeah, in the car. Yeah, yep. There's some information out there from a journalist who has been investigating this for some time. This journalist has been in direct contact with Darley's lawyers and investigators, and I believe he has also been in contact with some of Darley's family. Okay. He wrote a very well-written article for Soapboxy, which I think is a really cute name. Yeah, that is cute. um, The author mentioned some personal details about Darren. Apparently, Darren was fond of... um, Oh, God. The nose candy. The n- oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, he had a bit of a crystal meth problem. Okay, I thought you know what I thought you were gonna say, like when you said what? nose candy, like you what? know how some guys are like ass man or leg man. I thought, gosh, I was like <laughs> nose candy. He loves noses. That's a little odd. Okay, I get it now though. Okay, you got them sexy boogies. Yeah, up in there. <laughs> I love your nostrils. <laughs> Yeah, um, there is information to strongly suggest that Darren was actively selling drugs out of their home. Wow. In the comments of this article, this is what I I skim through comments sometimes. I rarely read all of them. Okay. I read all of them on this article because something caught my eye. Okay. A commenter, not the author, but um, a reader mentioned a ceramic frog statue that had a spare house key at the Routier's house. Okay. The author comments, how did you know about that? No one knows about that. Apparently, this is a thing. The Routier's had a spare key that was hidden on the underside of a ceramic frog statue. This frog statue was missing the night of the attack. Oh, no. From here, the theory branches in two different directions. The core theory is the same. So the core theory here is that two or three attackers possibly are two or three men from the, the prisoner's story. Yeah. They had planned to go into the home to perform this insurance scam that Darren had been trying to plan. The multiple attacker theory is actually backed up by two pieces of information. The first, at about 1.30 a.m. on June 6th, a woman reported that she had an attempted break-in at her house. And when she looked out the window, there were the silhouette of two men outside her door. This was less than a mile away from the Routier's house. The second piece of information is that one of their neighbors, a woman named Darlene Potter observed two suspicious men in the area near the house in the early morning hours of June 6th. Oh. Darren needed this money not because he was in a little bit of debt with their mortgage and their credit cards, but because he was in a lot of debt with his drug dealers. How much? Do we know? No. So this is where the theory kind of branches. 
Some people believe that the attackers got the day wrong. The Routiers had plane tickets to go to Pennsylvania and they were leaving on June 14th. So maybe the attackers thought they were leaving on a different day and they got it wrong. Oh. They were supposed to break into the house, but they were supposed to do it later. Other people believe that Darren knew they would come when the family was home and he was planning on the family maybe getting roughed up a little bit to sell the story. They were not planning on an attack like this. Remember Officer Waddell saw someone outside the house when he drove up? Yeah. We already established it was not Darren. If there were multiple attackers, what if it was one of them? A little bit of information about like post-trial. The trial transcripts have been a huge source for me when doing this case. The transcript done by the court reporter had a large number of mistakes in it. Um, how many mistakes would you consider a large amount? I just um, this uh, trial lasted just over four weeks. For a case like this, this like popular, I would say. 10 mistakes. This is counting things like uh, typos. Oh, um, oh, okay. So, so I don't know. This is, uh, you're probably never going to get it. There were 33,000 mistakes in this Oh, wow. I <laughs> said, look at me. Ten. Look at me, Miss Perfect. I can't even spell something without using spell check. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. There has been screenshots shared of some of the mistakes. It's more than just spelling errors. Oh, like what kind? Um, the person speaking has been changed. Oh. So like in some cases, it says witness when it was actually the lawyer. Or it says lawyer when it was actually the witness. Oh. Answers were changed. Like a yes somehow became a no. And vice versa. Wow. When the court reporter, I won't say her name because you can find it if you want to. It is on every single court transcript because her name appeared at the bottom of every single page. Okay. Um, when she was questioned in court about the massive volume of issues, uh-huh. she pled the fifth. Really? Yeah. And she initially denied the existence of audio tapes of the trial. But then like... She turned around and was like, well, well, there are tapes, but they're in my storage unit. So then the judge was like, well, fucking go get the tapes and bring them here right now. Exactly. So she goes and she gets the tapes and she turns them in. But uh, there were some missing. Oh, my gosh. She ended up losing her license over this. Yeah, she should. Using a combination of audio recordings, which it's 1996. They honestly weren't the best. And her original transcript notes and her transcribed full transcript. Uh Uh-huh. They found 33,000 mistakes. Wow. In the final transcripts. That is crazy. Um, A bloody fingerprint was found on the glass table in the living room. Due to its size, they said it was probably not an adult man, but it was probably a child or a petite woman. Prosecutors didn't take fingerprints from Devin before he was buried, so his fingerprints are lost pretty much forever. 
and Damon's fingerprint did not match. Okay. Analysis on the fingerprint in 2002 by a national leading forensic anthropologist determined that the fingerprint was not a match to anyone in the family and none of the emergency workers in the house. It was a bloody fingerprint, so it had to have happened during that attack. Okay. So whose fingerprint is it? Yeah. Guess who never brought this up in trial? The prosecutors? Yep. How did I know? Um, there's been petitions for DNA testing to be performed for several years because, I mean, 1996, it was such a new science. Um, and there's been so many leaps and bounds made since then. Darley's team is waiting on testing to be completed. Okay. So that's in the process now. Like, they're waiting for it. There was a pubic hair found in the living room. Ew. That didn't match anyone in the family. Gross. And it has never been positively ID'd. That's a little disturbing. Yeah. So, like, whose is it? How do they know that it's actually pubic hair and not, like... I mean... I know what pubic hair looks like, but how how do they know? Like, it's not like a really short piece of hair from a curly-headed person. Do you know what there I mean? There must be. I'm sure that they know. But how? Like, or I, I get what you mean that like it's coarse hair, and a lot of coarse hair looks the same, right? Yeah, like maybe there was a mini golden doodle running through the house. Like, I mean, they had a dog. Yeah, it could be his. And I didn't really mention that um, uh-huh. because I'm telling you guys right now, there's so much I haven't mentioned. There, I fucking cracked the case. That's it belonged to the dog. It wasn't a dog hair, though. It was like a human pubic hair. How do they distinguish able... that it's a pubic hair is what I want to know. And they're able to tell if it's a dog hair or a human hair. I want someone to line me up in a lineup, different types of hair. And then I want I want to be a hair, a leg, <laughs> leg hair, hair and, and I'm going to let you know which one the pubic hair is. <laughs> I know that there's ways that they can tell. Um, I'm not a forensic <laughs> examiner, so I don't know. All right. So this is I'm just going to share some like miscellaneous information that really didn't fit anywhere else. OK, but I really think it's worth mentioning. OK. Um, either because it's so like utterly ridiculous or because it's like, what the hell is this? Is the, okay. So when Darlie was testifying, the prosecution made her read several entries from her diary. Okay. Not just her like quote unquote suicide note. They made her read like five entries. That would be so embarrassing. embarrassing. Yeah. Because, like, well, sometimes you write things because you're in a certain type of you're mood. You're venting, or, right? And this is why I do not keep a diary. I would not want anyone to read that shit. I've read my diaries from middle school and no <laughs> and one. And you're, like, in the fire. Yeah, no one needs to know my my thoughts at 14. Okay, well, listen to this because this is just so sad to me. Oh, gosh. In her diary... She writes about her feelings working through, apparently her stepfather had some inappropriate contact with her. And she is working through it because I guess her younger sister was experiencing it too. And she writes about how 
She doesn't know if she can forgive him and she doesn't know why he did what he did. She had to read this in the courtroom. And was he there? Um, I think he may have testified, so I don't think so. Okay. But Yeah, that'd be I mean, no wonder she fun. lost her composure. Exactly. Right? So remember I mentioned there was that Texas Monthly article where the journalist learned about this insurance scam and confronted Darren about it, right? Yeah. Darren divulged some interesting information to the journalist. Uh-huh. Apparently, Darren was working a whole ton at one point, and Darlie was unhappy because she felt that Darren wasn't giving her enough attention. Okay. So, in a drama queen moment... She goes, well, maybe I should just divorce you. Like, totally not serious, but, like, she's 26 years yeah. old. Yeah. remember, she's 26 years old, and, I mean, I'm 30 years old, and I'm still a child sometimes. Yeah. So, I guess on one occasion, uh, so, you know, I know we all know this, that, you know, sometimes your partner's being a little dramatic, so you decide to meet them and be dramatic just to show them how ridiculous they're being. Uh-huh. Uh, Darren's plan to do this was that he held a gun to his head. Oh, that is a great idea. Yes. <laughs> I just, that was odd. Yeah. And I don't know really why he odd. admitted that. It's just Exactly. Weird. That is weird. I don't know if this is cute or sad or what. Um, I feel like you'll identify with this one. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, the boys, Devin and Damon, remember, these are like five and seven year olds. Yeah. They loved the song Gangster Paradise. (laughs) (laughs) I love that song, too. (laughs) They would ask for it to be played all the time. Why can't we so fly When Darren was testifying... They spent a long time talking about Gangster Paradise. (laughs) The prosecutor was reading the lyrics out loud in court. (laughs) Um, Darren, Darren and Darley repeatedly were like, you guys, the boys didn't know what the lyrics said. They just like the beat of the song. Yeah. I think they actually played this at that gravesite service. Oh, shut up. Because it was the boy's favorite song. You know what? Okay. I, I can see that. My daughter likes songs that she probably shouldn't like, but yeah. she enjoys them. And she doesn't know what they're about. No. She used to sing the Cardi B song. Um, oh, no. The Lizzo song. I'll throw my hair back. Check my nails. Oh one. yeah, yeah. I hate uh-huh. that song. I think it's and annoying. Then, but well, well, uh, there was a three-year-old when it first came out that loved the <laughs> shit out of that song, and she liked Cardi B's song. I forget which one it is. I don't know. Anyways, go on. Um, this is just—I don't know if it's significant or not, but it was mentioned in the trial, and it has stuck with me. Okay. Darlie's defense attorney was personal friends 
with the prosecution's private investigator, Bill Parker. Really? Yeah. I don't know if it's significant or not. It's just given that some people think that her defense deliberately through her trial is just interesting to me. Yeah. Everything about this is like, I, I don't know. So I'm going to get into some interesting information about Texas law. And this will answer some of the questions that you have about like why the prosecution was able to do some of the things they were allowed to do. Okay. A lot of this I had no idea on, and this is just fascinating to me. In closing statements, the prosecution said, quote, it is not a requirement of the state to prove the motive because we cannot always get into the mind of the defendant, unquote. I double checked this and it's absolutely true. Oh. In this case in Texas, uh huh. they're not required to prove a motive. Oh. Which is crazy to me. That is crazy. I thought that was just a given. I thought so too. Texas, oh, there's so much more as far as like the law goes. Okay. But this is crazy to me because it means they can make up whatever motive they want. Yeah. If they feel like it and just throw it out there. They don't have to prove it. They just that, have to say it. Yeah, that's insane. It's crazy. But this does explain why. Remember when I was talking about the motives that they threw out there? They kind of sounded flimsy to you and me. Yeah. I mean, enough people in the jury bought into it. Oh, and they wow. didn't have to That's prove surprising. it. That's surprising. They only had to say it. That's a little surprising. Um, in one of the pro Darley blogs that I used, this was like, I, I spent hours researching this because I want to know if this is true. So if somebody knows if this is true, please tell me. In Texas, the prosecution controls the flow of evidence. And discovery is not a right. So putting this in um, normal people terms. Discovery is the part of the trial process where both sides go, you know, here's the evidence that we have. Here you go. I share with you. You share with me. In Texas, you're not required to. The prosecution gets to choose what they share when they share it, and whether or not they have to share it. Oh. It's not the judge that chooses. It's the prosecutors. It's so crazy that things are different for every state. And this is a huge difference. Yeah. So the one caveat here is that exculpatory evidence is compulsory. They must share it. But the prosecutor is the one who determines if it's exculpatory or not. And the defense has no way of knowing what is or isn't and what they do and don't have. So they can't file the proper motions for a hearing to determine this until the trial comes and the prosecution tries to introduce evidence. That's why there's so many times in this case where evidence comes up and the defense can't even do anything with it. Wow. So this, a quote I found was, Texas criminal trials are known among lawyers in Texas as trial by ambush, not trial by jury. Interpreting this, this means that doing a jury trial for a criminal trial, if you go in as a defense attorney, 
you're basically going in not knowing what evidence they're going to throw at you, which is crazy to that me. That is crazy. I fe- like I said, I fell down a rabbit hole trying to read Texas Civil Code. I was looking for original <laughs> civil codes from the 1990s. It's difficult to find. You're the only fucking person that would go into <laughs> a fucking rabbit hole with civil codes. After like even just the mention of civil code, I'd be like, ah, oh, doesn't matter. <laughs> I found something. Oh my god! Of course you did. <laughs> okay, so I might be interpreting this wrong because I'm not a lawyer. Okay, and it wasn't around in 1996 uh, to practice law. You should be kindergarten. Man. Yeah. Okay. So, from what I can tell, rules 192 to 195 (laughs) state that you can withhold evidence in discovery if it is considered privileged information, and the owner of the information is the one who decides. So, the prosecution, if they say, oh, this is privileged, they don't have to share it. I think you've missed your calling, Crystal. I think you are wasting your I time. I to be a lawyer at one point. <laughs> you, you really should have been because, I mean, I don't know why you're wasting your time with me here. Like, <laughs> you just, um, you need to go back to school. I got to read you. Um, don't fall asleep because I'm going to read a piece of criminal Well, code. that just might make me fall asleep. So go ahead. Okay. Texas Criminal Code Procedures, yeah. Article 39.14, Subsection C. Oh, good. If a, only a portion of the applicable document, item, or information is subject to discovery under this article, the state is not required to produce or permit the inspection of the remaining portion that is not subject to discovery and may withhold or redact that portion. The state shall inform the defendant that a portion of the document, item, or information has been withheld. On request of the defendant, the court shall conduct a hearing to determine whether withholding or redaction is justified under this article. Basically, I think this applies to those illegal wiretap audio recordings. Because the prosecution claimed that they gave the defense everything but what if they redacted the hell out of it? Mm -hmm. So this kind of goes towards why they didn't use that full videotape showing the somber service because the defense is not about to admit something that they don't have 100% knowledge on. Well, of course. So remember I mentioned how the police officers just conveniently didn't really have that many notes? Yeah. I think they knew that if they brought their notes to trial, the defense would have access to see them. Because I don't know if people know this, but a witness is permitted to have written notes or something to jog their memory while they're testifying. But it must be admitted as evidence, even if it's not going to be. Like, even if the jury is not going to be allowed to see it, the fact that the witness is using it, it must be admitted as evidence, which means the defense team would be able to see everything. I think they deliberately left their notes behind because there's things in their notes they did not want the defense seeing. Makes sense. So, holy hell, that's a lot. It, Crystal, it really is. And... um. <laughs> I didn't even get, like I said. Are you fucking kidding me right now? I didn't even get into everything. Okay. There's so much more. I'm so, done. You're done. So basically, in a nutshell, 
Mm-hmm. She was found guilty, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She's sentenced. To death. And now we're just waiting for um, this pro bono group. And, and her can... appellate lawyers. I mean, she has and, okay. a paid They're working. legal team. Okay. How um, how long ago was this again? And how long has she been waiting to for some justice for herself? Man, um, this is one of those things that I just could not even get into because we've been talking about this for almost two hours and yeah. I can't even talk about the appeals because the appeals oh in God. and of themselves are ridiculous. She's had multiple appeals denied because um in essence a judge said meh i don't believe in dna well i don't know who she pissed off in her life but this is this is really this is just i can't believe it i'd be beside myself if it was me i don't know a whole lot about this case because we haven't covered it i haven't really looked a whole lot about it um susan smith was convicted she was a texas mom who had um put her children in her car and released the emergency brake and it uh let her car go and then she said it was uh yeah i think she said that a man had stolen her car or something i think she specified like an african-american or or Um, specified a black person this woman Susan Smith was not sentenced to death for whatever reason. Um, There are a lot of people, and this happened right before Darley. Some people think that a judge was making a example out of Darley to make up for Susan Smith. I mean, I can kind of see that, but how shitty for Darley. Uh Uh-huh. Because, first of all, I... After all of this, I, I sh- I'm convinced she didn't do that, especially after seeing those um, self-inflicted wounds, the pictures of Quote us. Quote, unquote, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one more little thing that, again, I just couldn't even get into, but I kind of want to mention it. Um, Darlie was writing letters to her family while she was in jail waiting for her trial. She, uh-huh. I just feel so bad for her. She was so naive. She didn't know that all of those letters in and out were being read by guards. How did she not know that? Someone had to have told her. She, the prosecutor, while she was sitting on the stand, confronted her with these letters. Because in the letters, Darlie is talking about, I know who did it. I know who did it. I think this person did it. Darlie actually gave the name of a person to the police, and they didn't really Uh investigate him. And so Darlie is writing these letters saying that she thinks this person did it. And the prosecutor confronted her with these letters in court. On the witness stand, Darlie says, is that legal? Like, did you illegally take my letters? And the prosecutor Uh. was like, actually, this is completely legal. And between that and her having to read her diary out loud. Yeah. She never stood a chance. Um, no, she witness. never stood a chance in any of this. And I'm surprised that this chick keeps writing things down. I would never write anything down anymore for the rest of my no life. No one else is writing anything down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
So I am going to post all of these photos that I referenced today. I will actually, I don't usually do this, but I'll try and post them before the episode airs so that people can actually see them while they're listening. Um, I'm also going to post in the show notes links to two different blogs. One of them is in favor of Darlie's innocence and one of them is in favor of her guilt. Both of these blogs were heavy sources for me. Um, They contain links to trial testimony and the transcripts, a lot of the photos. You'll get a lot of the information that I just could not even touch on with a 20-foot pole. And um, I get, yeah, thanks, Meredith, for suggesting this case. I don't know that I want to thank Meredith or you at this point. Um, You know, this lived with me for six weeks. (sighs) I've done three parts, so it's with all of you guys for three. I don't want it. I don't think that's a fair handoff, but <laughs> here we are. Um, I've lost my mind. and You have lost your mind. The moment you said, I went down a, a rabbit hole of city code, I was like, fuck, this is over. I need to go. <laughs> I mean, if my tone at the beginning of the episode didn't get you, the... <laughs> I started out saying I was tired in like the first minute. So. <laughs> I don't know if I'm tortured by this or cryptids, but it, it's a close. So a close. I can I can officially retire my notes. <laughs> oh, my God. I need um, I need a smaller case for my next one. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I'm not going to say thank you because I'm a little angry right now, but all right. Um, we'll we'll take see you guys next week <laughs> and carry it for a month. Yeah, I will because th- then uh, that's how that was your journey. Oh man, we'll see you guys next week. <laughs> Enjoy your life now that you yeah. have the weight of all of this information in your head, and now that you know that Darlie's just sitting there in jail with all the unjust done to her. Is that even a word? I'm tired. I, need I am this to too. Be done. And you know, yeah. there are still people that like to this day, they're like, Darlie did it. Darlie did it. And I'm like, no, have you I don't seen think she did. any of I this? Definitely don't think she did at all. It's just so much. So, too much. I said I was done. I'm done. Have, okay. have a great day, everyone. Yeah, I'm going to try. Goodbye. Uh, bye. <laughs> Kat and I are so grateful for all of our listeners, and we love hearing from you guys. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Interest Podcast, and let us know your thoughts on this week's case. We want to cover the things that you guys want to hear, so please email us your case suggestions at alternativeinterestpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and sharing us with your friends. Be good to each other, and we'll see you next week.